chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. A couple quick announcements here we forgot to mention. First off, back to my right, there's a sign-up sheet concerning the missions trip to Mexico. We've been talking about this about the last month or so. Jordan and Ryan had an informational meeting last Sunday. If that's something the Lord has laid on your heart that you want to get involved with, they are working out the details. Check out the sign-up sheet back to the right concerning the missions trip to Mexico coming up here in a couple months. Romans chapter 1. Continuing our study here through the book of Romans, let's pray, and we'll go ahead and get started then. Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. Thank you for that time of worship and just the time of fellowship, just to be encouraged in the body of Christ. I pray you go before this. As always, you teach, we listen, let your spirit guide and direct into all things, and we say thank you, Lord. We love you, and we praise you, and we say thank you in your name. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 1. Now, last week... We just did verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And we talked about what does that mean, to not be ashamed of the gospel, not be ashamed of what Christ has done, because it is the power of God to salvation. Your words may be helpful, your words may be nice, your words may be kind, your actions may be loving, but it's the gospel, it's the power of the gospel that's going to change people's lives. And that's what we need to remember. And God has given this blessing and this responsibility in presenting the gospel to as many people as we can. That is our goal. That is our mission. And what a joy that that is. So we're not ashamed of the gospel. Now, we took that step, and we went one step farther with it. Two weeks earlier, we talked about what your calling is. And then last week, we talked about what is the vision concerning that. And let me just break that down one more time. The calling is what God has called you to do. I'm called to be the pastor of this church. I'm called to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And I'm called to raise my boys in a godly way. That's my calling. Now, what does the Lord want us to do out here in 2015 as a church? That's the vision. What does the Lord want me to do to see my boys hopefully grow up and accept Christ at an early age? That's the vision of it. I'm called to raise them, but what's the vision for my family? I'm called to pastor this church, but what's the vision for it? So we encourage you, what is your calling? And then once you know that, then what's the vision that God has given you? And we talked about Nehemiah walking through Jerusalem, riding the horse and saying, Lord, what is the vision for this town? And then you guys going to your communities, where you live, where you work, where you everything, and just say, what's the vision you've given us here, Lord? And then let's move on this. Let's not just sit here anymore. Let's not be choked out by life, but let's really get a spiritual perspective on what God has asked us to do. What's the deeper vision that God has wanted us? We're very good at living life, but sometimes living life does not make an eternal difference. Let's not get choked out by the world that we live in and say, Lord, what's the big purpose? I just read a great devotional that went along with that yesterday. And that devotional is talking about how so often we equate the busyness, the activity of being a Christian as being close to Jesus Christ. And that's not the same. You can be very busy as a believer. I'm very busy sometimes out here at church with hospital visits, counseling, preparing Bible studies, praying with people, phone calls, etc. But just because I have a busy week does not mean I have a close week with Christ. There's a big difference there. And they talk about sometimes as Christians how we equate, oh, I'm close to Jesus. Why? Because look at everything I'm doing. Well, that's good. That's your calling. But is there a close personal relationship with Christ, an intimacy with Him, of where you desire to know of Him and to grow? And that's the goal. And that goal comes from knowing the gospel. So what does the gospel do? We're going to continue this 
idea of the gospel here. There were sheets in the back. There's also some notes in your bulletin if you want to take a look at that to see. If you'd like to take notes, you can go ahead and follow along with that, or you can just kind of listen and mark as the Lord leads. So, what is the gospel? Two things. Verse 17 of Romans 1, for in it, it meaning the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The gospel does two things. The gospel reveals God's righteousness, but it also reveals God's wrath. Now, what is righteousness? That's just a big fancy word to be made right. That's all righteousness means. So if you have righteousness, that means that you have been made right. If you have unrighteousness, that means you're not right. That's all it means. So, when I accept Christ as my Savior, when I accept the gospel, I now have righteousness. I'm now made right in the eyes of God through what Jesus Christ did. Not by my works, not what I did, but through what the Lord did. So, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. He wants to make you right. He wants to take you from this place of sin to a place of righteousness. It reveals God's love, His desire to have a relationship with you. Think about that. Romans 5 eight. God demonstrates his own love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His desire to make us be right. 1 John 4 says that God is love, and the only way we can even know what love is, is by knowing God. That's how much he loves us. He wants to be made us to be made right through him. But now the flip side of that is wrath. If you're taking notes, just write this down. John 3.36. John 3.36 sums it up very nicely. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, as we just talked about righteousness. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's that black and white. You either have the righteousness of God or you have the wrath of God. There is no middle ground with that. Now, generally at this time when we talk about that, that it's an either or, we usually use these examples because there's always somebody who says, well, life is not either or. Yes, it is either or. You either stop at the stop sign or you don't stop at the stop sign. It's either or. You either pay for that loaf of bread at Walmart or you steal it. It's either or. That's what it's talking about. Same thing here with life. You either have the righteousness of God or you have his wrath. There is no middle ground with this. Now, what we like to do is we like to create this big middle ground, this big gray area. I'm not as good as I should be in the Lord, but yet I still kind of believe in him. So I'm kind of right here in the middle. That's your own theology that you created. The Bible says you're either right with him Or you have his wrath. There is no middle ground. Now, just because you're right in him, accepted Christ, doesn't make you perfect. We still stumble and fall. There's still the forgiveness of sins. But there's been a time where you said, Jesus, I take your righteousness and make it my righteousness because I can't do it on my own. To reject his righteousness is to bring wrath. To reject is to bring wrath. Stay in Romans and just go to chapter 2 real quick. Romans 2, look at verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? His love, his grace, his mercy wants to make you right in the Lord. Verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your stubborn heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath and the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. If you choose to reject that righteousness, you get wrath. God's never lowered his standard. His standard has always been perfection. That's what he asks of you. Matthew 5, 48 makes it clear. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now think about that as your standard. 
He has called you to perfection. If you can't meet that standard of perfection, you now have the wrath of God. Well, that's why he's also given you the righteousness of Jesus. Because he knows that we can't make perfection on our own. We need Christ. Now, why is God angry? Why is there wrath? Because as Christians, don't we always present God as this loving God? He cares for you. He loves you. And that's one of the first things we tell people is that when they're called up in sin, hey, God loves you. He wants to work this out. He wants to come to you. And he wants you to have a forgiving heart here and a repentant heart. Or when somebody is struggling and they feel like they have no purpose in life, there's a God that loves you. There's a God that cares for you. Well, then how do we balance this with wrath? Why is God so angry? See, here's the thing. I don't think we realize how ugly sin is. Sin is an ugly thing. And what happens is this. When we allow sin into our lives, that builds up the wrath of God. And that's what he's trying to tell us here in Romans chapter 1. Look at uh, verse 18. Well, we'll start with that and keep moving here. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Why does God have wrath? He has wrath because people know God, but they choose to not believe in him that he exists. Because this, they have wrath, verse 18, they have unrighteousness. Why? Because verse 19, God is made manifest to them. Some of your translations say, God is obvious to them. It's made plain to them. But they still choose to reject. How is God made plain to everybody? Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. There's not a single verse in the Bible that says that you have to prove that God exists. What a, what a freeing thought that is. How many times do we get in discussions with non-believers as a Christian, and it turns to this idea of, well, I don't believe God exists. That's your choice. I'm under no obligation to prove to anybody that God exists. Think about this for a second. If I have an obligation to prove that God exists, how big is my God that I have to prove to people he exists? My God is so amazing, so powerful, so whatever, but I have to still prove to you that he's out there? No. Paul makes it clear through the Spirit in Romans 1 verse 20 that the creation of the world revealed the invisible attributes of God. So therefore, when someone comes up and says, I don't believe in God, I'm really just supposed to point them out the window and say, take a look around the invisible attributes of God. If they choose to reject that, that's between them and the Lord. But that is what I'm supposed to do. I run into too many Christians that feel it's their burden to prove God exists. There's not a scriptural reference for that. Take that burden off your shoulders and realize the way God proves that he exists is by his creation. His creation proves it. Now, that should not then surprise us that the idea of creation is constantly attacked, isn't it? Since creation is constantly attacked, the enemy knows that's God's greatest witnessing tool. So therefore, when creation is constantly attacked and all these ideas come in of evolution or where did we come from, what's our beginnings, etc., really what the enemy is doing is trying to put a dent into this wonderful witnessing tool that God has given us. As a believer, creation is the greatest witnessing tool that the Lord has given us. Look at verse 20 one more time. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood... By the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they were without excuse. So that means when somebody comes up to me and says, I have a hard time believing in God who allows the Bushmen in Africa, the Aborigine in Australia to die and never hear the gospel. No, that's not true. Verse 20 tells me 
that if that guy looks up in the sky at night and sees the moon and sees the stars, and in his heart he says, there's something bigger than me, there's something more important than me out there, and I desire to know this, the Lord will bring a missionary into that man's life to spread the gospel of Christ. I firmly believe that. The scriptural backing for that is found in the book of Acts. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah, and then through the Spirit, Philip brings it to him and explains it to him. I believe that fully, that if there is somebody who desires to know the Lord, God will bring A and B together and explain the gospel to them. They're without excuse. His invisible attributes. So why does God have wrath? First point is, they know God. They see this evidence. They choose to reject. What else do they choose to do? Verse 21. Because although they knew God... They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So they reject this existence of God, and then when they go one step further is they choose to glorify things other than God, and they choose to change the image of God. Think about that. Creation is changing the Creator. Boy, that's a prideful thought, isn't it? Creation is going to change the Creator. And this is what has happened for thousands of years. We do not glorify God for who He is, verse 21. To verse 22, we're so smart. The more time goes on, the more we learn, and we are so smart. So therefore, now we're smarter than the Creator. Boy, the wisdom of the world, the Bible says, is foolishness to God. Corinthians says the foolishness of God is still wiser than the wisdom of the world. But we're so smart, we figured all this out. And so what has happened, verse 23, is we have changed this idea of a creator and God now into this image of animals, birds, four-footed animals, creeping things, this evolutionary idea of where we came from. And it just completely takes God out of the mix. Why would man do that? Because if we don't have a creator, we're not responsible. We're not accountable. We're just here. So therefore, when we're not responsible, we're not accountable, there is no moral code that I need to worry about, per se, with an eternal ramification. This is why God brings wrath. They've rejected that he exists, and they've rejected his witness of creation, and then they take this idea of God, and they have completely morphed it and changed it into whatever they wanted to do. Creation has developed its own creator. This builds up wrath. Verse 24, Therefore, God also gave them up to his uncleanliness and lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They changed his truth. Did you see that in verse 24? They changed the truth of God about who he is. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They don't want to believe the truth of God. They don't want to believe the idea of creation. They don't want to believe the idea of heaven and hell. They want to believe their own idea. So they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they've created their own system, their own worship, their own religion, and they're okay with that. God says that can't continue. You can't do that. That builds the wrath up. Ultimately, they reject him, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. God says, that's the way you want to live? I'll let you live that way. Verse 26, God gave them up to vile passions. 
Verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. God says, that's the way you want you to live your life. I'm not going to force it. See, this thing about the Lord, one of the greatest gifts he's given us is free will. But yet that's also one of the biggest curses he's given us. In free will, I can choose to go deeper in my walk and relationship with Christ. Or in free will, I can choose to reject it. He's not going to make me do things. So in free will, I can choose to love him and serve him. Or in free will, I can choose to go a path of sin. If I choose to go the path of sin, verse 26 and verse 28 says, the Lord will basically step back and say, if that's the choice you want, you need to learn the hard way. That's the choice you've made. There's consequences to that. Elias, our firstborn, wanted to do something a couple of days ago, and it wasn't a good idea. That wasn't anything earth-shattering huge, but it was something he wanted to do, and it wasn't a great idea. So he came and he said, Dad, do you care if I do this? And I said, buddy, I don't think that's a real smart idea. Let's just pass on that one. So he came back a little bit later. Do you care if I do this? I've already told you. Let's not do this. So he said again, do you care? I said, sure. Go ahead. Give it a whirl. So he did it. Didn't work. So he came back, and he said, yeah, it didn't work. And I said, yeah, I knew it wasn't going to work. And he said, okay, sorry, Dad, for not listening. You know what I did? I said, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. He said, sorry, Dad, for not listening. I said, could you say it a little louder, please? Because we're not, I don't think the rest of the family is hearing what you're saying at this time. Can you break it down word by word for me? I love him. I wasn't going to let him go do something stupid. I wasn't going to let him go do something harmful. But it was an opportunity for him to stop and realize you know what? Sometimes it's good to listen to godly counsel. It's good to listen to godly wisdom. See, the Lord does this. There's certain things in life that I want to do. And the Lord says, James, that's going to hurt you. That's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt your family. It's going to hurt your kids. It's going to hurt your witness. It's going to hurt the church. Ah, but Lord, I really want to do it. It's going to hurt you. I really want to do it, Lord. Go ahead. Go ahead. He gives me up to my vile passions. Verse 28. He gives me up to my debased mind. Then what happens? We do it. And then who do we blame? God, my free will choice chose to go against God's perfect plan for my life. And then when it blows up, I'm mad at God. See, this is why the wrath has built up. They know of God, but they reject his existence. They choose to glorify other things and follow their own wisdom. They change the truth of the scriptures. Remember, there's three truths in the Bible. The Holy Spirit is truth, Jesus is truth, God's Word is truth. We change those three things. We have created now this image of Jesus to being this guy that lived a couple thousand years ago and was just out there taking care of the poor type thing. We lost this idea of him being God. We changed the scriptures to, yeah, there's some good points in there, but don't treat it as God's holy inspired Word. Those things are changed. God says no. And then eventually we reject him and we choose the flesh. So when we choose the flesh... We go down a path that is not good in any way whatsoever. Now, here's the problem, though, with Christians. We, we hear this, we see this, and we look at these verses, verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving their natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. Now, usually as Christians, we stop at that point. And we just want to talk about homosexuality then. The idea of men and men and women and women, how that's wrong and that's sinful. Look at the rest of this, though. Verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual morality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, 
full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, hater of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only those who do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And then we have a tendency to skip all those. Because as Christians, we, we got our big sins. And then we got these little sins. We don't worry about those. Let's just talk about the big ones. See, there's a point that we have to make here that is a struggle for some people to accept, is that all sin is equal. It's all equal in the eyes of God. Now think about this for a second. All sin is equal. It doesn't mean that the reaction and the consequences of all sin is equal, but all sin in the eyes of God is equal. If I go and snap at my wife, that's sin. If I go rob a bank, that's sin. In the eyes of God, I've sinned. Now, on this world, there's different consequences to me snapping at my wife and robbing a bank. One is 20 to 25 years. One is 20 to 5 minutes of silence. There's a big difference there, you know? <laughs> now, but it's still sin. See, now you have to understand this, and some of you have heard this teaching before. There's seven different words for sin in the New Testament. The most common word for sin is actually an archery term that means miss the mark. The idea is that you're aiming for the bullseye, and so that if you miss the bullseye, you sinned. You missed the mark. And from an archery perspective, it doesn't matter if you missed the mark by this much or by five foot. You still missed the mark. Now, the problem is with our human nature, we don't really like that idea of missing the mark. So we create this scoring system. Elias took archery for 4-H this year. So we'd go out in the spring and the summer, me and the four older boys, and we would do archery. And none of us could hit the mark. So we discussed the scoring system. The bullseye's worth five points. The ring around, that's four. Then three, then two. And if you just hit the target, you get a point. See, that way we're at least getting some points or scoring. Same thing happens spiritually. I know I missed the mark, Lord. I know it. But at least I didn't do what he did. Well, wait a second. In the eyes of God, you missed the mark. I know I missed the mark. I agree, Lord. I completely agree I'm a sinner. But I'm not like him. In the eyes of God, it doesn't matter if you miss the mark by an inch or a mile. It doesn't matter in the eyes of God if you're actually aiming for the bullseye or you turn around and shoot it the complete opposite direction. It's still sin. We have created this system where we have different levels of sin. So therefore, what you do may be worse than what I do, but it's not as bad as what he does. No, in the eyes of God, it's sin. See, the problem is certain sins aren't as ugly to us as other ones are. To God, all sin is ugly. But to us, certain ones aren't. If, if a guy comes up to me and says, James, I'm really struggling at home, and I say, what's going on? He says, you know, I, I love my children, I love my wife, but I come home from work, I'm tired, and I'm just impatient. And sometimes I find myself being impatient with my kids, and I kind of snap at them, and I get frustrated. I'm like, oh, brother, I know what you mean. I get you. See, that sin's not ugly to me. I can relate to that. So I don't find that sin is ugliness. Now, if a guy comes up to me and says, James, i got a struggle. What's your struggle? I'm out robbing banks every Saturday. I, I'm, I'm pocket dialing 911 right now, trying to get away. That sin's ugly. Well, why is that ugly? Oh, come on, man. Snapping at your kids, robbing a bank, there's no comparison. In this world, there's no comparison, but in the eyes of God, it's still sin. This is a struggle for some people. I remember years ago, we did a discipleship class. We were circled up back here at the end of the sanctuary, and there was a young man that came. One of the first lessons on discipleship is why you need to be discipled, because you need a Savior. We have to talk about Jesus dying on the cross and sins being forgiven, and when did you get saved? So this idea of sin came up. 
So we're talking about sin, and one of the points was the equality of sin. This young man struggled with this, really struggled with this. And so what are you saying? All sin is equal. So you're saying this guy does this horrible, vile, disgusting thing. That's the same as this. In the eyes of God, sin is sin. There's different ramifications. Got so angry, got so up, he left his right here and started walking back to Hamler on 109. It just disgusted him so much that we could call all sins equal. In the eyes of God, you missed the mark. So what happens is we see these sins listed here. So we go back to verses 26 and 27, and we see, ah, men with men, women with women, I get that, that's sin. And we come down to verse 29, sexual morality, that's, oh, agreed, sin. Wickedness, sin. Covetness, well, yeah, okay, sin. Maliciousness, yes. Envies, yes. Murder, yes. Strife, deceit, yes. So that's all sin. Then we get to whisperers, gossipers. Well, I mean, yeah, it's sin, but it's not like the others sin. And then we start breaking it down. Well, backbiters are bad. Violent proud is bad. Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Well, I mean, yeah, that's bad. But if you knew what my parents asked me to do, it wouldn't be as bad. What about verse 31? Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving. Unloving is a sin? Do you see how this person treats me and I'm supposed to love them? What about the next one? Unforgiving? Unforgiveness is a sin? If you knew what they did to me, if you knew how they treated me, See, now we start reaching a category that I like to coin justifiable sins. I know what I'm doing is wrong, but it's allowed and okay because how they treated me. They have been so awful to me that I'm allowed to have unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. So when the Bible says I'm supposed to show mercy to all, there's some exemptions and some exceptions to that rule because these people are so bad. No. Unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful is all sin. Verse 32, who knowing the righteousness judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving. Amen. We agree with that. Those that practice such things, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, I may not like that one, Lord. A practice, I agree. Now, those that approve... Some of your translations say, take pleasure in. Some of your translations say, encourage. What's it mean to approve sin? Your coworker comes up to you, and they start telling you about the situation they're having at home, and they're telling you maybe what their wife or their husband or kids are doing, and you sit there at work and say, you know what I would do if I was you? I would go home, and I would tell her this, I would tell him that, and that's what I would do. They come back the next day and say, that's what I did, and you say, good job, you did the right thing. Well, you're approving sin. You're taking pleasure in it. You take a joy out of seeing sin happen in someone else's life. I'm glad they got their due. How many times have we said that as Christians? You made your bed, you go lie in it. We lose this idea of mercy. We lose this idea of grace. And we live in this world of joy of seeing people suffer. Boy, the Lord says that's sin. We've got to be careful with these things. Because once again, when we look at this big list... We agree that one's wrong, that one's wrong, that one's wrong, but they're all equal in the eyes of God. That's why in 1 Corinthians, when Paul, through the Spirit, makes this list of people that will not inherit the kingdom of God, he makes a whole equality of all those sins. It's not like this group's really bad and this group's kind of bad, and these, if you do too much of these, it's eventually going to catch up to you. No, it's all sin. James 2 says this. James 2 says if you break one commandment of the law, you broke all the law. Because you're a lawbreaker. 
So one law broken makes me a lawbreaker. So a liar is also a murderer, which is also a backbiter, which is also a gossiper, because in the eyes of God, it's all sin. It misses the mark of righteousness that Christ has called us. We've missed the bullseye. It doesn't matter if we miss it by an inch or a mile. It's still sin. And this is what Paul is trying to say. He's building us up to verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's building us up to that point. To make this point abundantly clear. And this is what he does in Romans 3. Look at verse 10. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We're all sinners. Some of us don't think we've sinned, though. Can you go with me to First John to finish up? First John. See, some of us accept the fact there's sin in our lives, but once again, it's, it's not that bad. I could have done this. First John breaks this down for us. First John chapter 1. First John 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We cannot call ourselves a Christian and say we're walking in the light when we have darkness of sin in our life. It does not work. Verse 7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. We can be made right. But here, now we break it down to three categories. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. These are the people that say they didn't do anything wrong. They have no sin. I used to think that was crazy, that you could run into people who don't think they do things wrong. I mean, you run into people who don't think they do wrong in certain circumstances. We'll get to that. But people that just don't think they sin. And In my 37 years, I've run into two people who really don't think they sin. I just think that's crazy. And if you take them to this verse, it's like it just goes over their head. They have convinced themselves they don't sin. The truth is not in them, because the truth says we do. Skip verse 9, we'll come back to that verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And this is the one we run into more. If we say that we have not sinned. This is the justifiable sin. You get into an argument with your spouse, your kids, your co-worker, you do something you shouldn't, and you get called on it. Somebody says, listen, that action was not biblical, that action was not appropriate. We say we have not sinned. I didn't do anything wrong. What do you mean you didn't do anything wrong? This is where the justifying comes in. If she wouldn't talk to me that way, I wouldn't respond that way. I was already in a bad mood when I got to work, and these people were just picking at me and just saying stuff. We justify it. We say that we have not sinned. It's someone else's fault. I wouldn't have done those things if you wouldn't have done that. The Bible says if that's the way you work, verse 10, you're a liar. Because you're not willing to step up and say, I'm accountable for my actions. Yes, that person may be wrong on what they said. That person may be wrong on how they acted, how they treated you. But that does not justify what you have done. And so therefore, if you say you have not sinned, you are a liar. Because we all have sinned. So what is the goal, verse 9? If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful verse that is. One more time. If we confess our sins, the word confess means to agree with. So when I confess my sin, I'm agreeing with God that what I did is wrong. So I confess my sin. He, meaning God, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the beauty of it. Go back to our first point, the gospel. The gospel reveals God's wrath, but it also reveals God's righteousness. If we choose to reject this gospel, we walk in wrath. If we choose to not call ourselves sinners when we are, when we choose to ignore what sin is, if we choose to allow sin into our life because it's okay, we've justified it, the Bible says we're a liar, the truth is not in us, and we're walking in the unrighteousness of God, and we're walking in the wrath of God. But when we choose to accept that we are unrighteous, we are a sinner, we go to the Lord, we confess our sins, He forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That is a powerful three-letter word. All. Everything. Boy, that's the beauty of the gospel. So what does this mean? We have to be careful as believers that we don't justify actions in our life as sinful. We have to be careful as believers that we don't make our own hierarchy of sin. We have to be careful as believers that we don't become so holier than thou that we forget where we have come from in Christ. Confession is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Marv, if you want to come forward here for the final song. What I want you to do with this is Marv closes with the song. Two things. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe there's something in your heart right now. You know it's just not right. There's been some unrighteousness that's creeped in. Maybe you've justified it. Maybe you've said it's okay. Maybe you've ignored it. Now's the time to go before your Savior and say, I want to be cleansed of all unrighteousness. It's a time of confession. It's a time of giving this over to the Lord. With that being said, maybe there's something that you want accountability with, you want encouragement with, you want prayer with. I tell you, Rich and I will be in the back. Feel free to pop back during the song. We'll pray with you. It's not that we're going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But we can help you be accountable. We can give you some tools. Just like we talked about last week, it's the purpose of the church to equip you. We want to equip you with the tools to walk in righteousness, to equip you with the tools to be that believer God has called you to be. So I tell you, you and the Lord during this song, just give Him your heart. Give Him that confession. And if there's something more you want to talk about, Rich and I will be in the back, and we'll be back there to pray with you if you want. If I'm praying with somebody or Rich is while we're leaving, Marv will close you out with prayer. So if I don't get a chance to shake your hand, Good to see you here this morning. I'm glad you can make it. And let's really go out and live the life and all that we do and say. Marv, it's all yours, sir.